from Psalm 119. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take me, take from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Check. Now here we go. Yay. Also, just for a second, because this is sufficiently awkward enough, can we just take a moment? Like, this is where he looks down. You're a huge person. Every time I have to get through that, I just think, what's wrong with me? Why am I so small? (laughs) So tall. All right. Well, that was weird. All right. Well, we're good. We're turned on. There's obviously people out for holidays, and I don't know if anyone will listen to this later or not. I don't know if people do, but I, but I hope so. I hope that we as a, as a church are hungry for the Word of God and that they'll, they'll listen to it later, and so all of that will be well worth it. And even before I wanted to start, anyway, I just wanted to take a moment, and this is also, I hope this gets recorded because I was hoping— uh, this is something I want to say just to everybody, and that is just, on behalf of me and my family, uh, I just want to say thank you. Um, we have just been so blessed by you all. You, you guys are just um, so awesome to us, um, and that is not, it, there is some recent parts of that, as Mark helped me drywall my basement <laughs> on Saturday morning, uh, but it's also things that aren't that recent, uh, of just we have just been so spoiled by you guys and how you have loved our family as we begin this little church. And so I just, I just want to tell you that we love you and we're so thankful for you. I'm just so thankful. Um, just reflecting a lot on the last little bit of what it looks like in a year of being a lead pastor. You have, you have made it a joy and, and you've lived out Hebrews 13 in that, of what it looks like to be a joy to your leaders and your pastors. And so it just... Thank you. Thank you for loving us well over this last year. Um, and so, I don't know, I'll probably say that again here in October when more people are here. But I just made—I've been meaning to say it, and then a million things happen, and I forget. And so I literally put it in the note, right, to make sure that I said it. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. We love you. Um, we're so thankful for all of you. All right, with that, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 today. Um, and talking about idolatry. 
I can remember sitting in the cafeteria in my college talking to my friend who was from East Asia. He was there uh, as a student. We were in Hannibal, Missouri, and we were talking, and I was trying to witness to him and share the gospel with him and talk to him. And I will never forget the story of, uh, that he told me of his parents uh, putting out food and sometimes very large sums of money in front of the idols in the shrines that were outside of their house. And the monks would come by, he said, and they would take the food and take the large sum of money and they would do some kind of prayer over their house and over their family and that was supposed to bless them with good luck. And he told me, my, I would watch my parents do this and, he, and they were very, they were, they were not very wealthy people, even, even not, not just on, from the American standard, but they were on the poor end even in East Asia. And he said, I would watch my dad work and my mom work and do all these things and all for the sake of good luck, they would give these just large sums of money to these idols and the monks would come by later and they would pick it up and he said they would always take the money but the good luck never came. So we never had any good luck because my parents put money out there. So all we had was less money. And he used that as a reason to reject not just the, the, the Buddhist God that, that they had served and their understanding of God, but he used that as a reason to reject all gods. He, he looked at that and he just said, I don't want anything to do with God at that time of his life. And I tell that story because I think we want to remember that adultery is real and that even when it's a false God, it will push us further and further from the truth. It will not push us toward it. That even, it's not like there's like these compatible religions, and at least you're like a little bit religious here, and if you're a little bit religious here, that'll make you more open to the true God. But no, false idolatry is false idolatry, and it always pulls you further from the truth. It doesn't pull you closer to it. And as we look at this this morning, we have to realize that we have idols too. That, yeah, maybe this week, uh, Jimmy won't go out and whittle a piece of wood and start bowing down to it, But he does have idols in his life, and I have idols in my life, and we all have idols in our life. If we're all just honest, we would say there are things that creep their way in and sit on the the throne of our heart. See, idols can discreetly rule us. They lull us into a spiritual stupor. They're not always really obvious or or present themselves in that way, but, but what they do is they just slowly kind of lull us to sleep. And in that, they lead us further and further from the truth. What I want us to see, that God's second command, the command to not make any graven images or anything in his likeness, to not bow down or serve any kind of idol, is an invitation. It's an invitation to worship the one true God by rejecting all the false gods. It's an invitation into freedom. It's an invitation into the truth. It is the command that will free us from the influence of false idols. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we agree with John Calvin when he famously said, this is the most quoted John Calvin thing ever, the human heart is a idol factory. What he simply means by that is our hearts are always producing idols within them. The natural propensity for the sinner is to look for things to fill our satisfactions and our longings with that are not the one true God. 
That's just the reality of living in a fallen and a broken world as sinful people whose hearts need to be redeemed by a good and gracious Savior. So today's text teaches us that idols, what we're going to see is three things that they diminish, that they're dangerous and they disappoint. They diminish God's glory. They are dangerous to us and to our children. And they will always disappoint us. Idols at the end of the day will always find us totally disappointed. And that's what what I want us to see. And so with that, let's read from Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6. And I want to read them all together before we break them apart. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, that is the earth beneath, or that is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them. For... I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. God, I just ask for your blessing right now your blessing on the next (laughs) half hour to 45 minutes, God, your blessing on it to give us attentive ears to, to help us see that you are not mute and deaf like the false gods of this world, but you hear us and you speak to us. God, help us see that you are the living God, the God who all other gods must bow down before, that they don't even come to close and they do not compare. God, because that is true, I pray that you would meet us here today through the preaching and teaching of your word, that you would change my heart, tear down the idols that exist in me, and Lord, I pray this for these people that you've given me to love and shepherd, that you would help them beware of idols. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So looking at verse 4 through the very first part of verse 5 there, We see that we have this really clear command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or to serve them. It's clear the prohibition here is to not worship or create any kind of false idols, anything that is made in any kind of image that we might worship. We were first told that you're not to carve or make or create any image or likeness of anything. It is so important that we, that we see the expansive nature of this command, that it is in the things in heaven, on earth, or even in the water underneath the earth. He's simply just kind of piling it on. Like, when I mean nothing, I mean nothing. You're not to make any kind of image. In the same way that, that Paul writes in Philippians 2.10, that at the, the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And then he says, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. He's not talking about mole people. He's just saying, I mean everyone. Everyone will bow before Jesus. Everyone will confess that he is Lord And when God uses this threefold kind of designation of things in the heavens, things on earth, and things in the water under the earth, he is saying, I mean it. There is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that captures my glory, my majesty, my wonder, my grandeur, all of the things you are looking at. Yes, they're made to point to me, but they will never, never replace me. 
from the most beautiful mountain to overlooking wonderful valleys, from the vastness of the ocean, from the things in the heavens on the earth or the waters under the earth. He's saying, nothing compares to me. Anything that you try to create or make that looks like these things will fall short. It diminishes the glory of the one true God. In the book of Romans, Paul picks up on this theme in chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. It says, For although they knew God, talking about people and how they're created in the image of God and how they're made, he's explaining how do we get this place of all these false religions and all these false things. He says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Another word is they're saying they didn't worship him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. He's saying all of these idols created to look like men or birds or animals or creeping things, whatever that might be, he says, when they did that, they, there was an exchange that happened. They exchanged the immortal God for these mortal and created images. He keeps going and picks up in verse 25, if we just go down one verse there. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever." Amen. See, that's what we want to see as we look at this passage, that when we create or fashion some kind of God, typically in our own likeness or in the likeness of something we wish we had, whether that be some kind of animal or whatever it is that maybe more ancient or different cultures or societies do, or whether it's even in our society, where very obviously we have declared, I am God. The cultural movement is the self is God. I am in control of me. I'm in control of my body. I'm in control of everything that is about me. That's, that's, that's the whole push of the world. And the, the, the very air you breathe is that kind of air, right? I'm God. But he says, even when we make that in man, when even when we make our idols in our own image, all it can do is diminish the glory of God. Idolatry is so dangerous and so pervasive because we want to, to cling to things that we can maybe understand or that to seem easier rather than the immortal and amazing and immutable transcendent God of the universe. So I am less intimidated to worship this false image, this false God that I've created. Or even if I try to reshape and refashion God and call him the Christian God, but I make him in my own likeness, in my own image, and I tame him. If I just make him so I can kind of control him, or I only maybe give certain compartments of my life to God. God can have Sunday morning, but beware, God, Saturday night is mine. This is idolatry seeping its way into our life, and all it can do, all it can ever do, is diminish the glory of God. It will never measure up. It's like a veggie burger that people claim is like the real thing. It's not fruit rounds instead of fruit loops. They're not the same. Ask my kids. They're not the same. Skim milk is not the same. And dare I even say it, the movie 
is never better than the book. We know that's true. We know that is true. All of our false images, all they can do is diminish God's glory. Nothing we can create or make in our own imaginations or shape with our own hands, nothing will ever live up to the beauty and the glory and the honor of God. Nothing. At the best, it can be a shadow, (laughs) typically a shadow that falls so short and leaves us so dissatisfied. All we can do if we try to create and fashion a God of our own making is diminish the glory of the one true God. I, I I went ahead and I wanted to help us bring this home. What does that really mean? How do I bring that into my life? And so I thought through just five common C's of idolatry in our culture. This is in no way meant to be exhaustive. If you think of something else, that's an idol of your life. That's great. You can make it start with the letter C if you want. The Thoruses are helpful. This was just a helpful way to, to help us think through and help us hopefully even think through during our community group time. And what I'm trying to say this is, is these are the things that I think are typically held up in idols for those of us in our culture. I am guilty of all of them. That's why I could think of them so quickly. Children, career, commodity, circumstances, and comforts. These are things that make their way and they are idols in my life and all they can do is diminish God's glory in my life. They can only leave me wanting. They're like drinking salt water. I'm still thirsty at the end of it. If I idolize my kids, I still, they, they only bring down the glory of God. My career, wanting to look successful and do well, commodities, things, materials, possessions. If I could just have a house that looked like this or a car that looked like this or whatever it is, if I could just have these things, then everything would be right and good. If my circumstances were just a little bit better, if things weren't just so hard and I idolize them and I fantasize about these things or my comforts, I just want to watch some TV or I just want to enjoy fleshly pleasure, whether that be things like drunkenness or uh, sex or whatever it might be. Those, those, are, uh, those are fundamentally worship issues. They're idols in our lives, and we're telling ourselves, this will make me happy. This will bring me joy. This will make things better in my life. No matter what it is, whether it's your comfort, your commodity, your kids, your career, your circumstances, These things can't be the all-encompassing, pervasive point of your life. They can be good things enjoyed, but they will make terrible gods. And there is a difference. There's just a difference enjoying something for the glory of God and making it God itself. And that's what I want to warn us against, that in any of these ways, what we will do in our lives is you'll diminish God's glory You'll see him less and less. You will, like we talked about a few weeks ago, you'll reap what you sow. You'll start to sow into those things and those things will grow and grow and grow in your life. But your love of God will diminish. He'll become less glorious and less wonderful. Not because he is any less wonderful. Not because he is any less glorious. But because you'll start to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which is what Romans 1 tells us. That's how you lose the glory of the beauty of God in your life, is you start to replace him with other things. He must be, number one, and on top. 
all of these things that we're talking about, these five things, they are the things of the heavens, earth, and under the earth. They are forbidden from being your God and God's second command. And this is for your good. This is for your absolute good. Because what we need to see is that idols, even things that are maybe good things, they are dangerous. Idols are dangerous. Picking up halfway there through verse five, God gives us the reason. Why should we not make idols uh, out of uh, anything? He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We need to see that idols are dangerous because they stir up the wrath of God against us. God is a jealous God or a zealous God. His jealousy is pure and right and holy. It's not like your jealousy or my jealousy, tainted by sin. His jealousy is a righteous kind of jealousy that a spouse has for another. Husbands and wives know that those affections, those romantic affections, belong to them and them alone. And it is good and right to be jealous over that, right? Those affections are meant for one and one alone. And what that relationship teaches us and helps us see is that is still true about your worship and your honor of God. They're meant for him and him alone, The Bible tells us that the church is like his bride. He is our husband and he yearns over us with a holy jealousy. I am a jealous God. And I will visit your iniquity. It's dangerous because God is stirred up in a holy, righteous wrath. And what we see is that it's it's so dangerous because it has this lasting impact because he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Now, as we look at this, I think we need to see two sides of the same coin. The sides of personal responsibility and God's commitment to not punishing us for other people's sins— while also seeing the reality that our actions do bear tremendous impact on other people and the actions of others bear tremendous impact on us as well. It's two sides of the same coin. He is saying that he will visit their iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But I believe he is saying that he is doing so in such a way because they are still committing the same sins. What God is saying is that we are, when we are guilty of sin, we are guilty of sin, even if your parents did it too. What he's saying is that his righteousness and his wrath, his commands go on forever, for all time and forever. They, they are a reflection of his right, his, his, his character and who he is. And, and what God is saying is, is we're not trapped because my parents sinned. Now I'm trapped and I'm doomed to, to, bear the consequences of their sin by God, but rather what he's saying is there's never a time, there's never a generation where his commands don't still stand. And what you cannot do is say, well, I'm this way because my mom and dad were this way 
and I can't change. God is saying, no, 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 you can change. And his word remains true forever and always. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, he says this, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now that's just one verse, but if you read the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18, the very clear argument is that sons are not punished for the sins of their fathers, but that everyone is accountable for their own sin. That those who sin shall die, and those who do what is righteous and good, they shall live. That's all throughout Ezekiel 18. And and he's calling out this false teaching that was happening in Israel, where they were teaching that, that your your sin is going to impact your kids, or you are, are doomed because of this hereditary sin that has happened. And there was a proverb that, that said that the children's teeth are set on edge because of the father's sour grapes. And, and it, that was the proverb. It was this understanding that the, the kid's teeth hurt because of the father's sins. And, and God, through his prophet Ezekiel, says, mm, that's, not, that's not what happens. Everybody's accountable for their own sin. And what we see here, I believe, in, in this passage is, is, is Moses is telling this to these people who are getting ready to be, supposed to be this nation, and they're supposed to pass down these laws from generation to generation, and they're moving into this polytheistic culture, this culture that looks nothing like theirs, and he wants them to go and establish a, a nation that worships the one true God he is making so clear. If you get off and you start serving idols, your kids are going to become a lot more likely to serve idols. See, while we don't want to be doomed by the sins of our parents and our grandparents. And the Bible says we are not doomed, but we can obey. We also want to see that our sins are so impactful to other people. See, it's two sides of the same coin. Yes, we are personally responsible, but we cannot deny the impact that family life has on us. Proverbs 10, 17 tells us, whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he rejects reproof, leads others astray. So we have to hear both sides of the coin. We have to hear the hope and the gospel hope that I'm not doomed because my mom or dad didn't get it right. I'm not doomed because of these things, but also what I want to hear is that I can lead others astray if I don't heed instruction myself. And we have to see and we have to acknowledge maybe there are ways that I've been led astray because of the sins of impactful and meaningful people in my life. But God can redeem that too, and he can change us in that as well. It's a call to help us see that as the exodus was happening, it wasn't happening to an individual, it was happening to a people. And now, as the people of God, saved by Jesus, we are still all in this together. It's the call that says, your idolatry will impact other people. Your idolatry is going to have a negative impact to this faith community. That's the call. And God's wrath visits the iniquity of the fathers, the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. I believe that that, that that prepositional phrase is actually pointing to those third and fourth generations, that they continue to hate him, and that's why he continues to visit iniquity or visit their iniquity. Because they are still living in sin. They have not repented. And we see that in the Old Testament. When people repent before God, he renews them and restores them. 
and brings them back. But when we follow in the likeness of our forefathers in their idolatry, we will be led away from the path of life. And so it is important that we recognize these things, see their danger, and understand that idolatry, it's contagious. It's like a virus. It passes from one person to another. And yet we're all each responsible for our own sin and deeply impacted by a spiritual family. See, as we hear this, we can think, oh man, maybe this is just for the parents and the grandparents in the room, but it's not. When we covenant together, we become a faith family. You become spiritual aunts and uncles for the kids in our, in our church, for younger Christians who are just now new to the faith. You are meant to help them walk along. We're a new family made up of new spiritual moms and new spiritual dads new older brothers and older sisters and younger brothers and younger sisters walking together and understanding that idolatry has serious danger, that we're going to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. It means things like attending community group and reflecting on the ways that those five C's of children, career, commodities, circumstances, comforts, rank in our lives, to be honest and vulnerable, I'd say, this is where I have an idolatry problem. I let this thing rule the way. I let it climb up the throne of my heart and sit there and it rules and reigns in so many ways. I need help. Who's another brother and sister in here who doesn't struggle in that kind of way? Maybe you can help me along and we can help others in other ways. It's being willing to be vulnerable with the most, more intimate parts of life that maybe aren't for a community group setting, but saying, I want to pull somebody into this. I'm going to show some of my mess because myself is not my idol and I'm willing to, to look bad so that I can get some help. It's understanding that I want to be different and I want to change because I want to look more like Jesus. And what's so great about that is as we place Christ first is because we know that any idol, any other idol, it will disappoint us. Looking at verse 6, it says, But... And it's such a huge, important but. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We have to remember the character of God. He's the God who delivered them out of Egypt. He is the God who continues to show love and it's steadfast, covenantal, promise-keeping love. The Hebrew word is hesed and it's filled and jam-packed with this meaning of it's just not some kind of feeling that God has to us. It's not just like a disposition, but it's a disposition that brings about action and commitment. And he's saying, I'm with you no matter what and I'm steadfast. The huge contrast that's happening, yeah, it's to three or four generations of those who hate him, but his love, his love extends to thousands, thousands of generations. He's using these numbers to show us the extreme difference. The very heart and character and core of God is this God of love who's going to pour out his love that even his righteous wrath is for our good and leads us to repentance and change. And yes, it is. It comes and it says, those who love me and keep my commandments. Because what we see in the Bible is those who love God keep the commands of God. We read through Psalm 119. As Ben was just reading this morning, I was thinking, oh, it's so good. As we sit there, that I might meditate on your statutes. Whoever wrote Psalm 119 was someone who was just caught on fire for the love of God. They love his commandments. 
John 14, 15, Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't think it's so much a stipulation as much as a natural overflow of somebody whose heart is captured by the love of God, who doesn't have idols. Because here's the reality, is he will never disappoint us. He is so different than our idols. In Psalm 115, verses one through eight, we read this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does, not, he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idols disappoint because they're like this. They're mute, they're deaf, they can't see, they can't move or feel. When we cry out to an idol, all you get is silence in return. They don't smell, they don't have, make noise in their throat. They don't have the ability to say or sing or praise. But our God is not like this. Your idol is going to leave you wanting and disappointed, but God will not. He hears you when he cries out to him. He speaks to you through his word. He sees you in, the, in your deepest and hardest moments. He has hands and feet because he can actually do something about your situation and your life. He has real power. Not luck that never comes no matter how much you give. But a loving hand that's benevolent and kind even though you know you don't deserve any of it and you don't give anything. He's so much unlike the idols of our world that promise satisfaction and promise joy and never deliver. Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. That's verse eight. The reality is, is we become what we worship. We will be like the things that we esteem and love and value. If your children rule the day, you'll become childish. You'll make childish, silly decisions. You'll have to always buy the new toy or the new thing. Their schedule will ruin and run your schedule. They will beat you down into submission. And you will weep and wail like a child. If children rule the day, you'll be childish. If your career defines you, It'll become your identity. You'll have no problem stepping on whoever you need to step on to get where you want to go. You'll have no problem uh, withholding other responsibilities so that you might perform well there because that's what defines you and it makes you feel good and that's what you want to become or do. And you'll be driven by it. Commodities, they influence where you place value. If your values and your stuff you better beware because you will say with your mouth that you won't treat others differently, but you will. The most dangerous thing for us is that we get our idols. We start placing value in our own value in things. We will look down on others who don't have those same things. 
You'll devalue people because things will become what you love. Your circumstances will never measure up. The sky will always be falling. Something is always terrible. You're always discouraged. You're always struggling. And you're trapped. You're trapped in this never-ending kind of rat wheel of always wishing that things were better. Because listen, the idol whispers and lies and says, if this just happened, you would be happy and satisfied. And you won't be. You won't be. Your circumstances might get better and you'll just want more. The same is true of our comforts. You think having a specific comfort, that, that's how I'll get rest. Oh, if I can just do, watch this TV show. If I could just make it to this moment of the day. If I can just have one more drink. Or I did, the pressures of this world are just too much, so I'm just gonna do this thing here and it'll bring me some relief. It'll relieve the tension And all you'll want at the end is more. You'll just want a little bit more. I'm not asking for that much. Just a little bit of comfort. A little bit of ease. And I'll want more. And I'll want more. And I'll want more. Idols are mute, blind, and deaf. But God sees and hears and he speaks. And listen, Christian, you need this and he satisfies. He satisfies. Yes, your idols will disappoint you, but you know who will never disappoint you? Never. is the God of this universe. Because yes, it's true. There's, there's some bad news in that. We become what we worship. But listen, listen. There's really good news. There's really, really good news in that same exact phrase. We'll become like what we worship. Let that set in. If you worship the one true God of the universe, he'll change you. You'll become like what you worship. And that is good news. That is such good news that that is true. And he has set his love on you. And he is saying, I am the God who has steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I am promising you as the promise keeping God, you'll become like what you worship. So worship me. Worship the God of the universe. And you'll become more loving, more compassionate, more kind, more steadfast, more at peace. He will change you because he's promised to change you. That's the wonderful and good news of the second command. It's not just a command, don't do this. It's the command, because I'm the God who shows love, everything else will fall short. It'll disappoint you, but I'll never disappoint you. Never. I'm the God who lived, died, and rose again. And in his resurrection, power is the same power that lives in you to defeat and conquer sin. He's saying, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm here. I will be your God. You will be my people. I love you. There's good news. You'll become like what you worship. So the answer is as we put aside our idols and identify them and bring them down, we have to not forget to replace them what actually deserves to be there the God of the universe. The movement towards holiness is never one directional. It is always a move away from the things of earth. 
and a movement toward Christ. I just, I, I used this illustration a long time ago and I can't shake it, but just that hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And I love this line. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Becoming like God is what godliness means. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10, it says this. Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We must lay down our idols and take up Christ. Train yourself for godliness. When children, career, commodities, circumstance, comforts start to sneak their way into your life and they start to rule and reign, pursue what's godly. Because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Serve Christ and you will not be disappointed. That's the promise. You will not be disappointed. Because the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. I pray that we love God and set our minds on him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We worship, we adore you, we, we, we hold you up. And God, I just, I just pray and I just ask that you would reign and rule in our lives, that you would be the one and only God, that we would not try to create anything that, that even tries to depict you or, or any other idol that comes and we want to fashion in our own imaginations or in our own minds. <laughs> That all these things that we've talked about, God, they they just cannot compare. They just cannot compare to your glory. Everything else will fall so short. But you and you alone will reign supreme in your goodness and your honor and your glory. God, you are the one who will never disappoint us. And I ask this all in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.